All right, so I've got stories. I'm going to tell you stories. This is, this is uh, I'm warming up the audience. That's what this is called. I'm getting you on my side, right? That's, that, that's, that's, what, that's what's happening right now. You're being manipulated to like me. So that when I say difficult things, you're going to go, oh, it's okay, he's nice. <laughs> All right, so I have a family. I have a wife and five children. I'm going to tell you just a couple of stories about them. I'll save some for tomorrow. I'm going to tell you a story. Some of you, if you've been to Gloria, you may have heard this story. Um, it's, it's one of my favorites. It's the shortest one about, about the kids. Um, so Emily is our second born. And Sarah is our oldest. And Sarah came into the living room one day and she said, Mom. Are my underwear in the laundry somewhere? Like, I just keep having less and less underwear. There's something, I don't understand what's happening. Emily, number two, who is at this time four years old, is over in the corner. (laughs) It turns out that what Emily had been doing over the period of weeks was every once in a while, she would find a pair of Sarah's underwear, and she would just hide them. <laughs> One at a time. One pair at a time. And so finally, there were, she was down to like one or two. And I realized at that, at that moment that, that I loved this child very much, because she was committed to the long joke, right? And she had patience with it. It was, just, it was fantastic. That's, that's a true comedian. <laughs> The second one is about Abigail, and this also is a story that you may have heard if you've been here, but this is my favorite Abigail story. Um, One day, Abigail was about four, and she comes into the living room, and she's wearing a pink leotard with a pink frilly ballerina thing. She's got pink tights on pink slippers, a pink boa, and some pink thing on her head, and none of the pinks were the same pink. And so when she walks into the room, it's one of these, oh. And she said, Daddy, what do you think of my outfit? Now, I am occasionally stricken with wisdom, and so my response was, honey, That is a lot of pink. (laughs) To which Abby replies, thank you. (laughs) The other story that I'm going to tell you tonight is about our son, Sam. Sam calls me, this was, I was reminded of this earlier, Sam calls me dude. He doesn't call me dad. He refers to me as dad, but when he's talking to me, he calls me dude. And Sam will occasionally send me text messages. Um, with his iPad. And one day, he, Sam was doing the Bible reading. He, he's pretty faithful about doing the Christ Church Bible reading plan. And um, one day after he had done his reading, he sent me a text. And the text read this, exactly this. Dude, read the Song of Solomon to your wife. <laughs> You'll thank me later. I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. 
don't know what he knows or doesn't know. This is, this is who is standing before you. The guy who has these children. So, all right. I'll tell you more stories tomorrow. Um, let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We are grateful that you uh, created us to be a certain thing. Uh, Father, we are also grateful that you have given us your Son uh, so that that is possible. Father, we pray that as we uh, look into your word this evening, with, that, we would, um, that we would be changed, that we would be um, made better, that we would uh, find our hearts yearning more deeply uh, for you and to be like you. Father, we pray this in the name of and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, I want to begin by asking you to believe something that is, I think, difficult to believe. Now, it's the, kind, it's the thing that I'm asking you to believe is something that you will already tell me you believe. And you should, because you should believe it. But when you think about it, when you contemplate it, when you really dig into this idea, it becomes really hard to believe. But you must believe it. So I'm going to start by reading from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening And there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which was their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let the... Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two greater light, two great lights, the greater light to 
rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening And there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the living, excuse me, and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Are you with me? God spoke and things became. Is that hard to believe? I'm not done. If you're still with me, I want to press this just one step further. Because what I've said so far is not the difficult thing. That's not the part that's really hard to get our minds around. It provides a narrative for how everything came into being, right? So it gives us that. And I insist that every bit of the creation narrative found in Genesis 1 is perfectly true, and it is a necessary predicate for what I want to present next as the challenging idea. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. God says, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with its seed, with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, has the breath of life. I have given every plant for food. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. One of the most incredible ideas in the Bible to me is that God created us after his image, after his likeness. God created a being that was going to be like Him. From the very beginning, human beings were made to be something altogether unique among the things that God created. 
What this means is that humans, humans, are created to be like God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that we are made to be like God? Theologians wrestle with all that this means, and I don't have time or capacity to, to go through all that they have said. But we do believe that God has made us to be like Him. And it means at least this. That God created man. God created humans. God created usens to image Him forth in the world. To go into the world that He created and to make Him known. To be like Him in the world. In the Catechism for Children, which is a, an abbreviated, shorter catechism, the question is this. In what condition did God create Adam and Eve? Who knows the answer? In what condition did God create Adam and Eve? The answer is, He created them happy and holy. Actually, it's holy and happy. He created them to be holy, and He created them to be happy. So the man and the woman were created like God. They were holy. And they were created to be like God, and they were happy. We know that God is holy, and we know that God is happy. And we say happy, uh, as Pastor Bradley pointed out yesterday, we don't mean, I feel good. It means satisfied, content. Everything is good. God saw everything that He had made and it was good. He was happy. What happened in Genesis 3, what happened in the fall, is that something devastating happened to humanity. The consequence of being, uh, uh, of being disobedient befell mankind. So, what did God prohibit the man and the woman from doing? Eating the tree. Eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why, why did he do that? Was this... God created everything and then He put an arbitrary rule in front of them to see if they would obey the rule? Do this. That doesn't seem right. Was it just like, I'm going to give them a test. See if they pass the test. That's not what was going on. That God is not an arbitrary God and He's not going to be capricious like that. Rather, He said... Don't eat the fruit of that tree, the fruit of the tree. It was a very specific tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat the fruit of that tree, because when you eat that fruit, something is going to happen to you. What did he say that was? Death. When you eat of that thing, it will be death to you. 
And it wasn't just because they disobeyed a rule. It's because they went for something by the temptation that the serpent came and deceived the woman and he said, this is going to make you like God. And, that's, and so they, they, they ate that way because they were attempting to short-circuit the path to maturity. They weren't ready for that yet. They were going to have to judge. They were going to have to make judgments. They were going to have to know good and evil. If they're going to be good judges. But they weren't ready for it yet. And because this knowledge came upon them at this stage of their immaturity, it was like death to them. The consequence of the sin is embedded in the sin itself. The disobedience was not merely breaking a rule. It was taking on, taking into themselves a thing for which they were not mature enough. And the result was sorrow, misery, hardship, conflict, toil, death. And here's the question. Does this mean that they were no longer in the image and likeness of God? It does not mean that they were not in the image and likeness of God. But what happened? What happened to the image? It was marred. It was sullied. It was tainted. It was, in a way, shattered. But they still retained the image and likeness of God. And it had a significant impact on their ability to rightly image God forth in the world. Over the course of the Old Testament, we have this ongoing narrative of the relationship, the covenant relationship between God and man, who is, you recall, the pinnacle of his creation. He has this ongoing relationship, particularly through the people Israel. And all along, he is working with them to lead them into righteousness. This is what he, his stated goal is over and over again. I'm going to cut to a certain point in the story. Uh, uh, Israel is in bondage to Egypt. They have been taken captive because of their syncretism with the Egyptian gods. And they're, they're slaves. And then Yahweh calls Moses and says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out. I've heard their cry. I want you to tell them. I've heard their cry. And I want you to go and I want you to lead them. Go tell Pharaoh to let them go. And we know that there are refusals and plagues and all the rest. And finally, after the tenth plague, they are released. They're set free to go into the wilderness so that they can worship Yahweh. And then 50 days after their departure from Egypt, they find themselves at Mount Sinai. And he calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai and he gives him something. You remember what he gives them? The Ten Commandments. Rules. He gives them rules, doesn't he? Why did he give them these rules? Was he putting another test in front of them? Was he saying, okay, Let's do this again. 
Here are some rules. See if you can keep them so that I'll like you. Is that what was going on? No. So let's, let's do a little conversation. What was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What was the purpose of the law? What was going on on Sinai? On Sinai? Yes, eventually, in, in a way, yes. For their protection. For their protection. For them to be holy. Yes. Yes. Um, to expose their sin. Yes. To pave the way for Jesus' fulfillment of the law. Yes. Yes. All those things are yes. All those things are yes. I want to propose that there is another yes in the mix. And it's this. Yahweh was, on Mount Sinai, we have uh, basically a marriage ceremony. Yahweh is joining himself to Israel. He is saying, you are my people. And the Ten Commandments are, in a way, marriage vows. And what he's saying is, if you are going to be my bride, these are the conditions. I want you to be like this. But he's not saying, I want you to be like this because this is just the kind of gal I like. He's saying, I want you to be like this because in this way, you will be being like me. He's revealing his character to them in the law. When you, uh, when you obey, when you keep this law, when you abide by these statutes and these rules that I'm giving you, you're being like me. You're being the kind of human that I created you to be. You're being the kind of human being that I want to join myself to. These are not just rules or a system of rules that is going to be, end up being a trap and a snare to them uh, by design. He is leading his people, to be human in the way they were intended to be human. He was leading them along the path of what it looks like to be holy and happy. This is what God wants for them. This is what God wants for us. When we think about law, God's law, when we think about His rules, His statutes, His precepts, and all the rest, what do we what do we imagine? Do we imagine that it's just like this, this burdensome list of rules? Or do we look at this and we say, oh, this is, this is good. This law is good because it's teaching me how God wants me to be a human being. He didn't have to give us the law. He didn't have to give us these, these statutes. But he did as an act of grace to say, this is what it looks like. And we, because we have been out of fellowship with God, should say, oh, oh, okay, I'm, I'm grateful for this. A rule, a rule is not just a, um, a, defin a defined act of obedience. It's something that you have to obey in order to satisfy some next step kind of a thing. Or think of a rule as a ruler. It's a, a 12-inch ruler, right? 
uh, it's a standard against which we measure things. So the law is given to us so that we can measure ourselves against it, so that we can see how we're doing. We know that when we look at the law, that that's what I'm supposed to be, and so I, I have that to strive for. I'm going to read a couple of things to you. If you're from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Sulphur, what am I going to read? Psalm 1. Here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his... Delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. He delights in the law. Blessed is that man whose delight is in the law. And he meditates on it day and night. Is it because this, this blessed man is just neurotic? And he's just, okay, I've got to think about the rules. I've got to keep the rules. What are the rules? I've got to keep them. Just always doing that? Or is it like, what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean to be this kind of man? What does it mean to be this kind of woman? What does it mean to, to, to walk according to this way? And I'm so grateful for the law. I'm so grateful that God has given us this. Or listen to this. Teach me, O Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dead, that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Does this sound like someone who looks at the law as burdensome? This is someone who looks at the law and is grateful. Help me, help me desire to be this kind of person. Help me desire to, to desire it more. When we read this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This doesn't sound like someone who is being oppressed by a bunch of arbitrary rules. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So now I'll ask you a question. Against what do you measure yourself? Against what do you measure your choices and your life? If you are like, I don't know, most people, you're probably measuring your life against your friends, against the fashions of the day, against the demands that the culture is making upon you. 
to buy this product or do this thing. But the measure against we, the standard against which we should be measuring ourselves is the law of God. Now here's a question. Can the law make you holy? No. Right. It cannot. Why can it not? Because we can't fulfill the law. Yeah. Yeah. We can't. We just can't do it. And we look at it and we say it's good and we want to do it, we desire to do it, but but we can't do it. Put your finger there. We're just going to hang on to that for a minute. And I want to talk about something else and then we're going to come back to that idea I want us to turn to Isaiah listen so I told you everybody has already done my stuff I'm going to Isaiah chapter 6 baby so I'm going to tell you a little bit about this chapter from a personal angle Isaiah chapter 6 is the passage of scripture that I was reading when I was converted very very personal passage to me. Specifically, I was reading R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, when I was converted. Um, and, this, and this chapter was the, the chapter that I was reading. Um, and I actually had a chance to say, to tell R.C. Sproul that he had had that impact, you know, the way that he was um, teasing out the meaning of this chapter. And that was a significant thing. But I, I get emotional when I come to Isaiah chapter 6 um, because it's very personal, but also because of what it actually reveals about human beings. Listen to this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. So, a robe, uh, in the Bible, when we come across a robe, that's a special garment, right? It indicates something special about the wearer of the robe, right? Uh, usually a sign of royalty, right? And, and this robe had a train on it. You know what a train is? That's that part that comes off the back. You ever seen a, a, a bridal dress with that long train on the back and it makes the dress more glorious and more magnificent, right? You know what I'm talking about? Do y'all, did y'all, have y'all ever seen the video? I know you weren't alive then. But when Lady Diana and Prince Charles got married, have you ever seen a video of that? The most astounding thing about that wedding was the train of Diana's dress. Like, there were like 80 ladies behind her. Carrying <laughs> the train. So much. It was like, oh, come on, this is a little excessive. This wedding is taking all day. But now, look at this. The train of his robe filled the temple. This is magnificence. Isaiah is in the presence of a truly magnificent royal, uh, royal being. Above him stood seraphim. You know what seraphim are? They're angels, right? The six-winged angels. And each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Why would he cover his face? The glory of the Lord. Yes. He's in the presence of the Lord and he dare not look. 
With two, he covered his feet. Why did he cover his feet? It is an acknowledgement of his creatureliness. When we think of Moses taking off his feet, take, off, take the shoes off your feet where you're standing is holy ground. And with two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why is there repetition? Why do they say, holy, holy, holy? I mean, holy pretty much says it, right? I mean, it's not like holy and righteous and true. There's something to that, probably. I think in the Hebrew, there is, um, the the, uh, emphasis is delineated by repetition. So when, when a word is repeated, it is emphasized, right? So when Joseph's brother threw him into the pit, they threw him into the pit pit in the Hebrew. I guess if they threw him in the pit, 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 it would have been the piteous possible pit. <laughs> R.C. Sproul said that. I didn't say that. But it's funny, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. Now, it's interesting that he says holy, 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 and not mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or truth, 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 or life, life, life. Holy, holy, holy. He is the the thrice holy, perfectly holy, other being. The holy Lord of hosts. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called out. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Man, this is awesome! i got to tell the boys about this. Your boy was in the place, man! (laughs) Now, Isaiah, being in the presence of the thrice holy God, pronounced judgment upon himself. He said, I do not belong here. I am judged. I am condemned. When I read that, I said, me too. I do not belong in the presence of God. He is too mighty, too glorious, too holy for me. Isaiah said, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone, I am annihilated. Because... I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips? Why did he say, I'm a man of unclean lips? Do you remember Jesus saying, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him? 
I do not belong in the presence of this God. I am undone because what's in me is what comes out of me. And what comes out of me is altogether gross. Paul's going to reflect this idea in a minute from Romans chapter 7. Not only am I a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's not just me, it's all of us. We are all unworthy to be in the presence of this God. In Luke chapter 5, also this was from R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, and it is... um, just just beautiful. Listen to this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. In other words, Simon says, Man, we've been fishing all night. We're tired. Ain't no fish in this water. Because you said so, we're going to go ahead and do it though. So we're going to go, we're going to go fishing. And when they had done this, they enclosed a, a large number of fish And their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, You remember? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter realized that Jesus had control over the water. He had dominion over the fish. And at His Word, they caught not just one or two fish, they caught so many fish that it was sinking two boats. Peter realized that Jesus was God. And he realized about himself that he did not belong in the presence of Jesus because he himself was a sinful man. We don't understand this. We don't talk about this enough. But God's holiness is not just that He's all shiny and clean and untainted. God's holiness is terrifying. Because it is so other from us. And when we are confronted with God's holiness, when we get His holiness in our minds, we realize, I'm sunk. I'm undone. I'm dead. And if we don't have that in us when we encounter the holiness of God, it's like not being out of breath after you've sung. You haven't done it right. 
Now, we have the benefit of having the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament. So we know the story. We have heard the story. We have believed the story. And so we don't struggle with these things anymore. Right? Right? I don't know about you, but I still struggle. I still struggle with what comes out of me. I still struggle with what's in me. And it's not just, you know, being unkind to somebody in traffic. Oh, you bad driver person. Oh, I shouldn't sin like that. You know? It's the stuff that is in me that is filth and foul and rage and madness and all there is. Right? It's that stuff. It's the desires. It's the attitudes. It's the despising of brothers. It's the uh, not wanting to do what I know to do. It's uh, seeing what I shouldn't do and doing it. And it's seeing what I, I, I should do and not doing it. It's not being what God created me to be. If we know the Gospel, if we know the story, if we know all of this, why do we still struggle? What is our problem? Listen to this. The Apostle Paul. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. This is the Apostle Paul. Right? We're going to call him one of the good guys. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's an interesting take on this that I don't know if it is true. I don't know if it's what Paul intended when he wrote this. But in the ancient world, there was a punishment for certain criminals, particularly murderers, that they were chained to a dead body. So a murderer was very often chained to the murdered person. So that everything that the man did, the person did, the dead person was right there with them. And as the body would decompose, it would affect infect the, the living person so that ultimately it was a death sentence. It was a form of torture. I don't know if that's what Paul has in mind when he writes this. It could just be uh, who will deliver me from this body, this, this body that can't do this, the good things and all that. But if it is true, I think it's a brilliant illustration. Who will deliver me? Who will set me free from being chained to this dead person? Who is killing me? The 
His answer is this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has done something for us which is not just whipping up some sort of pixie dust miracle to make us able to live according to the law. What God has done for us, He has done for us in His Son. He has come in the flesh. God Himself came as one of us, living like sinful flesh for our on our behalf and for our good. Listen to what he says. There is, I'm going to read a long passage of scripture, so, you know, hang in there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the the mind uh, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the... If if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. God still says to us, to humans, to humans, to you, to us, be like me. I'm holy, so you be holy. But now, He has done something else. He has provided the means for us to do this. He has added Jesus. He has given us His Son to make it possible for us to not just obey the rules, but to love Him and to, to be with Him, to, uh, to, to, to be like Him. The Word the life-giving, creating Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. And this is of more than just He came and pitched His tent with us. This is the, uh, the, you know, this is the thing. You know, the, the Word, He came and dwelt, and dwelt among us. And people say, well, that really means He pitched His tent with us and He was one of us. And sure, 
yes and amen. But do you, do you remember this? Do you remember this that Pastor Jeffrey gave us? He came and tabernacled with us. He came and was the tabernacle to us. He is the offering that is offered. He is the one whose blood is sprinkled. He is the one who is put on the altar, who ascends to heaven. He is the priest who offered the sacrifice. He's all of this stuff in there. All of this stuff is about Him. And when He came, He came and He brought this to you personally. To each of us. Now, we have access to the holy place. We are saints. A saint is not just a fancy way of saying Christian. A saint is to say you are one who has ongoing and forever access to the sanctuary. You are sanctuary people. You are allowed in. He has made you holy. He has made you acceptable. And not only that, He gave us His Holy Spirit. He gives us His Holy Spirit who dwells with us and in us in order to guide us into all truth and so that we might bear fruit of righteousness so that we actually look like God in the world. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree that is planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf also does not wither. In Galatians 6, I'm going to finish with this. We're going to be done. I'll pick up here tomorrow. There are, there are contrasting kinds of people presented in Galatians 6. Or Galatians 5. I'm sorry, Galatians 5. Uh, and, and Paul writes this. I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. These are the works of the flesh. These are the kinds of things. This is the fruit of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I always think that phrase is so funny. You know, and stuff like that. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not enter the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, 
He will be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water who brings forth His fruit in its season. The fruit of the Spirit. And it's not, it's not fruits. Fruits of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the, the Spirit brings forth in you. Not just a little of this, maybe one season, a little of this, the other season. This is what it looks like in your life. Because you have been made to be like God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're not, said, you're not uh, told to pick one or two of these and work on them. This is what your life should look like. This is the fruit. These things. This is, or these things is the fruit. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking each other or envying one another. You have been made you were made to be like God. You were made to be holy and happy. And He has provided that for you. But you have responsibility. You have duties that go along with that. And that is what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your law, it is good. We are grateful that you have loved us and that you have made us acceptable in the Beloved. We are grateful that in Him we understand holiness, we understand life, we understand peace. Father, we pray um, that you would inspire us, that you would awaken us that You would give us a deep desire to follow You, to be like You, which is to say, to be like Your Son. We thank You and we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.